Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome you to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan, and we are in Columbus, Mississippi. Alec Calkins here with me. It's someone I've been excited about having on the show for some time. Alec, how you doing? Alan, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, man. There's there's quite a bit of a story here to tell. Not only is he a musician, he's an author, and also he's made films in the past. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and so uh, we got some ground to cover. I wanted to start just a little bit of a background on you. Man, tell me a little bit about where you were born and raised. Okay. Conyers, Georgia. So my dad... I've never heard of that. It's right outside of Atlanta. So I'm guessing... My folks are living in Atlanta, but the hospital is in Conyers, and it just makes sense to do it there. I don't know. But my dad is thinking he's about to go to seminary in Chicago. My mom's going to nursing school, or at least I might have the the time frame off, but something like that. Mm -hmm. But if we take that information away, as far as I know... I've lived in Columbus, Mississippi, my entire life. So how old were you when y'all moved here? So they go up to Chicago. Dad um, decides he's not going to go to seminary. And they come back to Columbus, Mississippi, a place that my dad had already lived twice because the Air Force Base. Okay. And, and um, you know, Columbus is one of these places where famously people move away, but they get pulled back in. It's always phrased as a negative thing, but I, I believe that that was the case. My dad comes here with his family because of the base. They get stationed somewhere else, but then they get stationed somewhere else again, and that's Columbus. So that's just part of the pattern, the gravitational pull. I'm going to say something about that gravitational pull about Columbus. It's like uh, just I live just outside of Columbus, and that's where I was born and raised, and Columbus is always where I hung out if we wanted to go to the movies or whatever else, right? Yeah. Or go to a show. Uh, but it does have that appeal as you get older. It's, it kind of, man, what about Columbus? I love it, and I'm an earthy guy, so I probably resonate with the uh, the roots, you know, pull, pulling you into the ground and, and building something, you know, here. I definitely resonate with that. But don't get me wrong. Um, I have left the state to plant seeds elsewhere and have definitely, you know, come to my own conclusion that, you know, I don't need to do that. But to, to play devil's advocate, if Columbus, Mississippi is Dairy, Maine, and it lives in the sewer, I, I'm not going to say that's wrong either, but <laughs> I'm also not going to pretend like there's something wrong with, you know, Colorado or Arkansas or New York City or Land, Georgia, Memphis, Tennessee, where, wherever you know people uh-huh. flee, flee to to get away from, you from know, here. their nightmares or whatever. Um, so I love it. I love Columbus. Yeah, I've got no beef with it. So man, like just growing up, were you always uh, into the arts? Was it music or? Yeah, I was totally obsessed as a kid. Um, I feel like that is incredibly I- smooth. 
you know, is that good? Um, brought to you by Russian Standard. Yeah. That's, uh, um, it's a mighty fine vodka. I mean, you can get Russian vodka in Columbus, Mississippi. Come on. Um, but yeah, man, I, I spent my 20s trying to chill out this urgent need to create something. Um, I mean, I was literally this child that was driving my poor parents nuts and they did such a great job of appeasing me with video cameras and art supplies and whatever I needed because I just had this innate burning anxiety of I gotta do this you know so um so I definitely spent some time in my 20s going to school and doing the um the quote unquote normal thing to try to like stop some of that yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, so like just <laughs> during elementary, middle school, high school, it was all about the arts. I mean, was you, oh, yeah. was I, you I banned in high didn't school? Didn't care about or? anything else. I, I mean, t- I'm to- I dropped out of high school in ninth grade. I didn't even drop out of high school. I like, they had to take me out of high school. They weren't going to let me drop out because it was just um, the emphasis on meaning, which, which I think is what kind of ended my film career because. I had placed so much meaning on working within that medium at a time where cinema was dead. Celluloid was not happening. You know, if you want to make films, you're going to do it on digital video. And even if this had been 30, 40 years previously, it's still costing so much money to even create a film. Super 8, 16 millimeter, whatever it is. Um... But, but just this, um, c- coming into that field at a time um, where those millennial films, it, it's just changing. It's a different thing. Yeah. Um, I think YouTube and um, kind of the vlog and the video essay and, and what, whatever is happening right now with online content, that's where all that was heading even before YouTube, you know, 2003, 2004. So it was, it was an interesting time for me. Um, but but I think because I mentally place so much meaning on th- this is the way or the purpose, you know, like in a religious kind of sense. Sure. I definitely had to be like, no, nope, I'm done with this. What no. about some of the influences? Would it be like a Stanley Kubrick or like? Who? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely like like the auteurs because I was coming f- from it in a. Um, not to discount the commercial aspect of it, because there has to be an audience, just like with a book or with a song, you know. It, you, it doesn't exist if there's, or the relationship isn't done, Yeah. If, if there isn't someone to receive it. So that being said, I still like the auteur stuff, and it's all about the personality of the filmmaker. So whether it's the symmetry of a Stanley Kubrick shot, or, um, you know, um, I, I really like um, Tarkovsky and... Um, the the Russian and Eastern European stuff, um, because it is so um, the the personality of the filmmaker, but I also don't think that's necessarily a good thing either. So that that's that's all wrapped up in my very conflicted relationship with cinema <laughs> and the very brief time I dabbled in. But I will say my biggest influence um, is Kenneth Anger, who essentially created the music video with films like Scorpio Rising, where he's putting girl group songs and Elvis songs over footage of biker gangs snorting uh, 
I'm not, I can't, I can't think of the word now, um, because I'm nervous, but, um, amphetamine, I can't even say the word, but anyway, um, <coughs> he, he, he was not, not only was he ju- juxtaposing, um, those kind of images with pop music that was on the radio at the time, and then clearly influencing people like Martin Scorsese, who are giving you violence set to pop songs. But he was also heavily evolved in the occult, and not even not just an armchair occultism where you're reading about stuff, but really being a practitioner. And this whole idea that films are like magical weapons. And I would say it's, it's the same with writing music or even writing a book. You know, a- anybody... Well, I say anybody, but I know from my own experiences, you could write a story, and so, and then it happens. Not in like a super specific way, but enough a way where you know we were talking about synchronicities before we started mm-hmm. the interview. Just you know things like that where you think, well, you know that's weird, and of course you're working with your own subconscious mind, so you're um, whipping stuffing up stuff up in your own mind when you're being creative and making stuff come out. But needless to say. I mean, with what he was doing though was he was taking something pop that was more, a little hardcore and mixing oh, yeah. the two together. Mixing, yeah, and just with that, like symbolism or signs mm-hmm. or however you want to place it, is to do a little Confucianism. Is Confucius? He had a saying that he said, "The world is not made by word or law; it is made by sign and uh, hand gesture." Oh yeah, well. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. all those things are in the visual arts. Yeah, Confucius is definitely not confused about that. Um, everything is symbols, and I think there have been artists that have tried to tap into that. We were talking about Bob Dylan, and how he's he's clearly tapped into the zeitgeist. Um, but there but there is a responsibility with that. So I think my own frustrations with how there's absolutely no practicality. Um, to filmmaking, and it, it's just a huge uh, ego trip. But at the same time, um, it, it's the paradox of it's okay to want to stand up on top of the mountain and like look at me and like let me entertain you yeah, sure. and let me give you a piece of me that you can resonate with because this is so nakedly me that you know probably at least three people in the world are also going to be like I totally relate and resonate with that. As opposed to something mediocre and spread out across a generalized audience. So, um, I did end up writing Kenneth Anger, which was really funny because I was looking for his address forever. Because even before Facebook, where you could find any like C-list celebrity on Facebook and friend them, you could you could find people's addresses back in the day and pen pal, you know, whether they're Charles Manson or, you know, Kenneth Anger. So, I could not find Kenneth Anger's address and... I won't. I won't tell y'all what I did because I. I don't want anybody doing what I did. But I <laughs> did do something. I did do something. And um, the next day, or maybe even right. At, I can't even remember. Actually, I, I think I did it immediately. I, I don't think I would have waited till the next day. I did what I wanted to do, and then I googled searched Kenneth Anger's address again. What whatever keywords I put in to pull up an address, I don't remember. And there's a blog article. That was like three days old. This dude had written a book about Bobby Beausoleil, who is the guy in the Manson family who got arrested for an unrelated crime before they did the murders. Bobby Beausoleil is a musician. He records the soundtrack for Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising, blah, 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 blah. 
Anyway, some guy wrote a fictional account about Brian uh, Jones from The Stones and Bobby Bosley and Kenneth Anger's in there. It's all fictionalized. And Kenneth Anger was really upset about it and wrote the guy a nasty letter and basically said, I'm Kenneth Anger, like, I'm putting a curse on you. Yeah. You're screwed. Well, the guy puts in his blog article, I am one of the few lucky people whose you know, pop culture icon Kenneth Anger has cast a curse on. And he gave you the picture of the letter. On anger stationary with the with the address with the address. So I'm not saying I I my my spell my ritual made that happen. I'm just saying that when you're doing dangerous stuff like that, you're putting yourself in the spider web where what you're doing is also linking up with what other people are doing. And so I got Kenneth Anger's address, and I um he's one of those guys where he will write you back. He will write you back. I, I would send him Halloween cards after our brief correspondence, and he would always write me back and say, thank you for the card. So anyway, um, the the moral of that story is, I'm not telling anybody not to go into filmmaking, or I'm not saying don't make a, a music video for your um, band, but I, I'm, I'm saying you're going to have the most success if you keep the meaning very light, and it's all about just having fun, and you're not treating it like... This is my identity, and this is some cosmic thing. Because it definitely can be, but that's why you know people go insane and have issues. Yeah, just to take a step back. I mean, like, how were you when you wrote first became pen pals? Oh man, I mean, this is all. Like, I, I'm probably still a minor, you know, when all this stuff is happening. Yeah, so I mean, just to take it to that level, just for a second, is. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, just like in the arts realm, is one thing you may or may not want to ever do is meet the one who inspired you because they they may not be who they actually are. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for him to write you back was something, but like it would almost be better if he never wrote you back. But what if he wrote you back like a, I don't know, fuck off, loser, or, you know, you know just something. Oh, yeah. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah. It, it could um, be like, wow, you are not who I thought. Lucky for me, um, I don't think uh, Kenneth Anger has a reputation of being a friendly guy. So, if anything, I was writing him very aware that um, <laughs> that he, was he, a possibility. He could, he could curse me. Um, I asked him about Jean Cocteau, who who made some films like his his French uh, Beauty and the Beast and Blood of the Poet and Orpheus. Um, but he's also a photographer and poet and just all around artist. Um, he saw Kenneth Anger's first film, Fireworks, and brought him to Paris. So Kenneth Anger is like doing his thing as as a teen and gets to go to Paris and be a filmmaker and have patrons. But anyway, I knew that Cocteau was into some witchy stuff. So in my initial letter to Kenneth Anger, I asked him, is that where your occult journey began? Were you initiated in Paris by Jean Cocteau? And the letter I got back was, Jean Cocteau is a narcissist in the extreme. I hate answering questions past present and future kenneth anger <laughs> you know on that that same um spicy stationery that i had seen online just four days before i mean i got the letter like that he wrote right me right back. back it was awesome yeah i mean anybody who knew me at the time could tell you so you was talking it, it was a good week <laughs> and so just moving on from there i mean you would go on to make some films and they would locally they they went over well yeah, I mean, people get really hyped up when they see a kid doing stuff that people don't realize you have permission to do. You know, you're allowed to pick up a camera and make a movie. Um, we just did that reading at Munson's, and um, 
I definitely want people to come hear my story and celebrate local authors. But I was definitely aware that it can make a huge impact on someone, especially a younger person, but really anybody of any age. But damn, if you get someone young to come and see that and realize, I want to do that. They're doing that. Why There's no reason I can't do why that. Can't I? The Magnolia Film Festival was definitely something like that for me. You know, my parents had just divorced. My dad's thinking, what the hell can I do, you know, for this boy right now? Mm-hmm. The very first Magnolia Film Festival was happening. So we went to it. And I didn't stop writing scripts until I, I, I came home that evening and started writing a script, you know. Yeah. And it was probably like 12 scripts later where I had something malleable, something good enough where it was like, okay, I can, sh- I can show this to some friends and be like, all right, this is what you're going to do. And this and this, and you know, you make the damn thing. So it was like a drama or like, what were you into? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Drama. Super serious. Yeah. You know, you can tell I'm a goofy guy and I'm, I'm, you know, so I definitely was like, all right, everybody, everybody knows me as the class clown. I want to do some Ingmar Bergman shit and this is going to be black and white and it's going to be intense, and it's going to you know talk about how authority is you know dropping the ball, and let's listen to Pink Floyd the Wall one more time, smoke a clove, and we're going to shoot this scene. <laughs> you know, good plug, man. That's, I can't tell you the last time I've seen someone smoking a clove. Well, it was back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't smoking a clove. I was probably smoking a Swisher Sweet because I thought that's would look cool and the pictures but we didn't actually take any behind the scenes pictures but you better believe i was i was playing the part yeah right on i had my tie on everything and just to dig a little bit deeper it was like i mean what was that like just entering into a film festival i mean oh it was great um but but, but but once again it's not asking anyone for permission right well all right but this is also the thing though i don't i don't want to steering by wrong i i hounded and beat down, and and uh, drove Ron Tibbet crazy. I I was sitting in Harvey's one night, and um, my dad you know brought to my attention like, hey that that man over there in that booth, that's Ron Tibbet, the guy who founded that that festival. So you better believe I went and bothered Ron while he's on a date with his wife. And next thing Ron knew. He's just trying to do the right thing, yeah. and he's meeting me in uh, Joe Muggs Cafe and Books a Million to read my shitty scripts. That's something else. And telling me how bad they are, and yeah. I'm literally just making the changes he's telling me to make. But that's you know so robotic and cut and paste that he's seeing that and be like, well, that doesn't work either. But I finally wrote something where he really liked the ending, and he he told me he read that ending and he thought like I I would like to steal that. Mm-hmm. But you're a kid. I don't even want to be hanging out with you, but I'm doing this out of just, it's the right thing to do. So I can't steal your story. So that's when I knew, like, okay, we can we can shoot this script. Yeah, we totally have something. So, um... And you just use your friends as the actors for it? Oh, yeah, you have to. And then and then you lose friends, too, you know. <laughs> the, the, the opening scene and the closing scene of the movie were not in the movie, because by that point, the guy that I had put in charge of the lead... Over another friend who really wanted to do it, but it's all about aesthetics, you know. And that that guy was would have been more loyal and saw it through. But th- that kid was like, "I'm done, man." So we actually lost the opening and closing scene, 
but th- those really beat the uh, the theme of the story kind of over your head. So it's kind of a classic example of just let go, let what happens gonna you know happen because um, it didn't need those scenes. Yeah. So, but I'm not friends with that guy anymore either. Yeah. So I mean, you you would go on and uh, win a festival. Was it that one you would win? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I I do have a beautiful. Stained glass um, magnolia made by Suzanne Barton, um, but at the same time, you know, I was hanging out with Ron Tibbett every day, so there's some partiality. You know, it was very, very kind that I got that award. Then I made um, made a music video um, a, a year or so later that that also won an award, and then won an award at the Tupelo Underground Festival that Daniel Lee put on. I can't remember if there were two or three. I know there were at least two two blow underground film festivals, but it did not last very long. But it was very cool that Daniel put that on because to organize a festival, I, I saw Ron do it uh, until he uh, he left this world, and I just can't imagine you know how Daniel did that you know playing music and working a job and and all that. But the cool thing about that festival, <coughs> again, to take away from my um laurels I have an award from the Tupelo Underground Festival because they gave every film an award Fair. and okay you know we kind of we kind of live in that age but it wasn't like a participation <coughs> trophy it was more like I'm watching your film and I'm inventing an award for your film Yeah. so that music video I made for Valkyrie won the what the bleep did I just watch award oh, which man. um I, I really cherish now, but I, I don't, I no longer own the piece of paper that that uh, certificate was printed on, because I think at the time I, I took offense to it. But again, this is the guy who had to like give up filmmaking because he was just taking it too seriously. And it's also not practical, you know, so watch out. <laughs> <laughs> and so just from there, it's like from making films to moving on into exploring, and maybe you were exploring music and writing of uh, like, how did that transition go? Well, I feel like... Um, I mean, because you were already writing. Yeah, I mean, chronologically, as I'm just kind of realizing, not only is this not practical, but I, I'm not happy doing this either. And now I have, like, this moral ambiguity about the power of art and, and what you're, you know, you as the vessel are, are bringing into the world. Um, I think I was also realizing I, I really don't have anything to say. You know, I don't want to do the Jean-Luc Godard thing or the Tarantino thing of just quoting other movies and wasn't interested in the meta thing. So that was the point where life had to happen. Sure. Um, and and I, f- I feel like I'm saying that in a negative way, but that that's... You have you have to ex- experience life, I guess, to comment on life or, or to make life better with your art. So um, I definitely built a house on sand for a few years, um, and I guess art was still kind of happening, but it was definitely not happening for public consumption. It was definitely happening because you know it's just one of those things where something that had to come out. It, yep, exactly, exactly. So, um, to quote Stephen King, I mean, 
people want to hear stories, or at least the stories that Stephen King is interested in, and and I agree with him on this are those working, you know, the the details of work, you know, and and it's funny the paradox is Stephen King writes a lot of stories about authors and artists. But naturally, authors and artists make their own schedule so they can get into mysteries and dramas. But I, I do I do love just the idea of, you know, this guy's working in a sandwich shop or he's a mechanic and you're, you're getting stories and you're, you're getting um, ideas, but you're getting them in this very grounded setting of the suffering of man and the turmoil. And, you know, he's not seeing his kids because he's got to work, but, you know. Maybe something's going crazy at daycare and there's a cult and underground tunnels. and I don't know. It's just, if you can find the anchor, then you can just get into that underground stuff and, and let all those anxieties and fears come to the surface. And that's that's kind of the stuff I'm interested in. It's, it, it, it is like an exorcism, and I think that's why it's scary. And there, there is this sense of, like, obligation. Like, you know, you're playing with fire to an extent. And you're also putting yourself on the line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what stage fright is. This um, this fear that we carry an identity and an ego in, the, in these things that we think we are, and we want to show it to people. Yeah. Until we show it to people. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you, you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, and uh, I mean, personally, I'm not gonna take offense if you're not. I'm a fan of his work. Of, I mean, what do you think? Like you mentioned him. Like let's let's talk, let's go over. Well, Quentin he's Tarantino. he's he's easy to make fun of because he's doing the thing. Um, I mean, what what else could a filmmaker do? He's a smart guy. He, um, he's like really, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I even bring him up because what other contemporary filmmakers can can you bring up? Um, yeah. I mean, there's people out there, but even the names that are coming to my mind, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, has he even been relevant, you know, the past decade? I, I don't know. I mean, the, the whole art form has always been part of a, a factory machine, um, and I'm personally more interested in the idea of exploiting that, you know, let's make as many movies as we can. That's why if I'm watching a movie today, I'm watching... Italian B movies from the 70s because they were just cranking that stuff out so fast. They were literally tapping into the subconscious and the fears of the time, you know. I mean, you think about abortion and uh, divorce being legalized in Italy. There's some really awesome B movies that tap into this anxiety about male and female relationships. And it kind of creates the the slasher genre, just these psychosexual murder mystery movies. Sure. And sure, I love that stuff. And and it is popcorn escapism, but it's really tapping into. I'm with it. Some some real stuff. I'm with it. And so uh, I've I've got a friend who comes on the show all the time. Cobb is. Uh, he tells you if you want to know a good movie. The first player you look at is the director. It's not the actors. It's not the people that you want to see on the film. It's the guy who's creating the play. Yeah. And he was like, after that, look at the players. And but I mean, I find myself doing both. And like, just in America world is like uh, Peanut Butter Falcon, Shia LaBeouf. Uh, I like Shia because. I mean, he's one of those guys that's, he's, he seems to be unafraid. Yeah. He doesn't really give a damn about what the public thinks. 
Yeah. And he'll 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 do the row. Oh, for better or worse. No, I I agree 100%. I don't really know anything about his creative output, but I definitely recognize he's he's one of those dudes where it's like, okay, I'm in the public limelight. I'm I'm doing this for real. I'm just going to own it. So yeah. I can de- I definitely respect and and really like that. But yeah, I mean just back to those B uh Spain films, mm-hmm. it's like hitting those hard-hitting topics of those days. It's like, man, we have to. And that's something that I, I want to do like with the show and all the content that I create, whether it be music or whatever I'm doing, is I want to be privy to the day, and I want to create culture. And it's okay if you don't like it. Yeah. I want to make you think. Yeah. And Man, I mean, Dean Stockwell, I didn't, I didn't realize he passed away until today. And... and that that scene in Blue Velvet with Dennis Hopper is so ingrained in me that I, I can't I can't even be around a Heineken without quoting that movie. Um, but I did not like Blue Velvet when I saw it, and that was one of those movies as a kid. I would always ask adults, "What's the weirdest movie you've ever seen? Uh-huh. What's the scariest movie you've ever seen?" If I was ever in a situation where it's like, "Okay, my my dad's grabbing something. I'm I'm standing next to his coworker." Yeah, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? So I'd, I'd always get, like, Exorcist is the scariest movie. Rocky Horror is the weirdest movie. But Blue Velvet would pop up in there, too. So Every I knew I wanted to see Blue Velvet. And Blue Velvet and American Psycho are two movies that when I did see them, I was like, I hate this. This is awful. What a terrible movie. What's <laughs> What just, like, stupid decisions were made by the director. But then I kept renting those movies. Huh. And... Those are two of my favorite movies. So I'm not saying I like everything that I disagree with, but I'm totally with you. You can watch something and not like what you're seeing and be totally clueless that what is happening is changes are happening inside of you. That's right. And perceptions are opening up and you're, you're getting more pieces. And just like creating good art or having a you know, long-term relationship creating a family and creating a life with someone, there can be a lot of scary, uncomfortable parts to that. But that doesn't mean that's bad. Um, so I, I like that, that you say that about art and how, you know, someone might not like my art, but man, someone may actually really like that art. That's just the they just They just have to go through that initiation. And I'm almost know? like where we are in American culture right now. It's like if... In, especially with art visually is if it's not like uh socially acceptable they they almost want to just call it folk art and they want to they mm. want to narrate it to a certain region of the world that are of the country that may like it and I was that that is a strange take that is a strange take I've never thought about that but calling calling things folk art outsider art I think you're you're right. Uh, it really is kind of a derogatory. Th- this is something outside of us. These people did not get their MFAs in art, so because they they drew this, you know, piece of fruit on a block of wood, we're going to call it outsider art, or you know, someone's grandma made this incredible quilt, but she didn't go through our process of initiation. It's outsider and folk art. That's really cool. I've never thought about it that way. I just thought about it as... And I've embraced it. It's, it's outside art because it's outside the system. But 
if someone called what I was doing folk art, I mean, that's why some of us are trying to learn the same Bob Dylan covers, thinking we're the only ones learning those Bob Dylan covers. We, we want to be folk. We want to, I mean, there's an authenticity to that. Now, of course, it's been totally exploited, you know, just, just like those Italian giallo films, but it's yeah. a fine line, but that's why it's worthwhile because it's a fine line. I mean, yeah, and you got to walk it. And it's, uh, I mean, just to go, we were talking a little bit about the music festival I threw over the weekend, and uh, I had uh, musicians, I had uh, two bands, I had five singer songwriters, and I had one live painter that I wanted to paint the experience. Oh, oh, oh yeah, that's awesome. And I remember he's like, I only brought two canvases. And I said, <laughs> I'll be right back. And what was stocked in my fridge was these, you know, natural light boxes. And we had already ran through two 15-packs. And I, was, I took these natural light boxes out there to him, and I said, paint on this. Thank you. They sold. Oh, man. They s- pay more for those. They sold immediately. Yeah. Clementine wants one now. I mean, I'm, I hear I, She's about it. <laughs> and so, and, and that is like, anytime, like, and I want to do Porch Fest again. I want to make it an annual thing. Maybe tw- bi-annually. Maybe twice a year. But I, I want to I create those events for, like, for not just people who enjoy art, but for maybe someone who's never experienced, like, you've, you've never seen someone paint, or you've never heard yeah. live comedy, or you've, or, and, and I wanted live poetry. And, like, I wanted, I wanted everything to be fully there. And I was like, you, you are going to be fully aware of what the arts are by the time I'm done right. with you in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. In Hicktown, Alabama. And it was like, by the way, we are not hicks. We, we do like art. We yeah. do like art. Yeah. We are about it. That is the culture. Art is the culture. I mean, we we have college football because that is the culture. We can never escape from this need for identity because we have to have community. And it's wrapped up in all of that. That's exactly it. And, I mean, by the, during that time, I mean, it's a Saturday. College football is on the TV. God only knows how many more people would have come if that wasn't on the TV. Yeah. But back to you is like just coming from coming off of these uh, movie films is like, well, I don't want to do that no more. I'm not really into that. Like, how did you transition more into uh, putting your thoughts on paper? I mean, I know you were already doing that and, and music, and it's like, how did how did you kind of find your your way from walking away from that? Well, I guess I definitely found my way from my mother, the um, people who were willing to just go out of their way to be mentors, regardless if it's because I was, you know, pulling on their shirt and like, hey, hey, look at me, get, you know, help me with this. Definitely ask for what you need. I mean, people are going to reject you, and 90% of the time they're probably rejecting you because they're jealous and they they don't want to compete with you or they don't want to see you happy because they're miserable. But either way, ask for what you need. You'll be surprised what happens. I'm glad but you put it that way. It's definitely... That's true. It, I mean, this is... I, I, I'm blessed to have had experiences where I, I, can, I can definitely say <coughs> it's one thing to read this or to have faith that this is true, but I've been so blessed to have incredible experiences where I, I, I know... 
if, if I've found my way at this point, which I do have faith that it's getting better and better every day, but man, it's definitely been through um, the, the charity of these other wayfaring strangers, you know, um, mm. but, you know, but, but absolutely my mom and my dad and oh my God, my stepdad, you know, just people where, you know, like, yeah, I guess there's supposed to be some kind of obligation there. Um, and now I'm, I'm kind of at a point in my life where I can be a mentor to other people too, which is when you really start learning because you, you're, you're not a student really until you start teaching somebody else what the game really is. Um, so I want to say, um, yeah, I just got to a point in my life where I had done the domestic thing, um, but not well at all. <laughs> I, I would like to do the domestic thing for real. Um, but, but anyway, I, I did the, um, I did the, let's, let's learn some stuff way. And, and anyway, um, I, um, I was kind of, kind of what got the ball rolling was, I had never gotten that three-hour math credit. So it was one of these like perpetual, you don't have your degree because you got to do three credits. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I got off on that in a way where I could blame somebody else and be like, yeah, like I've done my, my, my job. It's just one stupid class that they make you take. And again, through the generosity of people who were going beyond what their job called them to do, I was able to take some made-up math class for football players at a community college. Um, I told that teacher what I needed, which was, I've got to get this th three-hour credit so I can finally get my bachelor's, so I can get into an MFA program and be around artists again and network and put myself in a situation where I'm obligated to meet deadlines and produce content. And instead of making a 36 like I should have or whatever, probably less than that, I got that solid 70, was able to get my bachelor's degree, and went straight into uh, MUW's creative writing MFA program. Uh, about, well, I'm, well, actually, it, it overlapped with my divorce, but tw 2018, um, I, I moved into the, the servants' quarters behind this antebellum house where we're at right now, and, um, and just was like, okay, you know, I've, I've left. I've left my um, my family basically. I mean, I did not leave my family, but you know, the woman I asked to marry me, I you know told her I wanted to leave her. So I left her, and and you know put put my son in, in her primary custody, and you know moved into this you know two hundred year old shack where you know people of color you know had to live to you know build a house like what's looming over us right now. And anyway, so yeah, some really cool you know psychological you know, stuff, lots of guilt, <laughs> lots of weirdness, but, but I did the thing, I broke away, you know, I built a house on sand, and I left, and I left that sand, uh, yeah, so, so, but, but anyway, so yeah, um, I'm, I'm still, I'm still on my own path to figuring out what do, what do I need to do, um, not just for my son and my legacy, but just my role as a person on planet Earth while I still have my hands, you know. Because when I'm dead, I'm not going to have these hands anymore. And I definitely feel like part part of the obligation is not just our children and the people who are here right now, but our ancestors and our friends who have gone before us. I think we live in a very 
Protestant westernized world where even if you believe in an afterlife, people think like that's over. But they do, and I think a lot of art comes from that inspiration of I think people it, died not being able to accomplish what they need to accomplish, and we've got to I, I step believe, up and continue that. I believe the Western culture is shifting fastly. Uh, it, I agree with what you said, but I believe it it is shifting more towards uh, the acceptance of more of an atheistic view, but also a view. Um, how to put it that has the veil pulled over their eyes before the master pulls the wool over their eyes uh, we're, we're in a very strange place I think artistically as a culture and I believe uh, it, it boils uh it's a cultural thing. It's a very political thing. And I like, uh, I believe the boiling pot is beginning to come to a bowl. And we're frogs in that pot. And the ones that jump out, I believe are going to make some really good work. And I think that's where we are. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, when we were talking about the idea of the auteur and, and the ego and how... On the one hand, the audience can connect to the singer-songwriter, the artist, the filmmaker, the, the novelist, when it is so personal and so stylized, and it's like, this is me. Yeah. This is no tradition. This is no institution. This is me doing my own thing. And it connects with people. At the same time, though, we don't realize, I certainly didn't realize, this is totally new. We didn't have the luxury, it's not even a luxury, we think it is, It'll be of, of creating our own traditions. We're so comfortable and so far removed from the act of survival. Yes. Um, the artist was a craftsman. They had to be the apprentice. They had to learn how to paint the icons, how to build the church, you know, how you helped your neighbor create a thatched roof and before the snow falls this was <coughs> tradition this was a protocol you know mm -hmm. i mean that's the whole the whole idea of freemasonry and secret societies and handshakes all comes from the fact that the guys who knew how to build the cathedrals were initiated into these secrets of how you, how you did this stuff because a big deal and now we're so far removed from that that art is no longer part of a tradition that is connected to the material world where you have to eat to survive and the, the, spirit, the spiritual world of the afterlife where we're all heading. Um, now we've, we've lost that and we're trying to get back to the garden by making up our own thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, man, I'm working on a fantasy right now. And like you, <laughs> you kind of spoiled my plot with that. And that's totally fine because some of the numbers and imagery and things that I'm going to use, maybe it was the same thing that Tolkien used in his mm -hmm. uh, fantasy with the ever-seeing eye mm -hmm. and all those mm -hmm. ideas, was the idea of this masonry and Freemasonry. Is, that is, that's my plot, and it's all these people coming from the outside. Mm -hmm. But these people from the outside, they're still this 
fortress that's standing tall that you may or may not breach. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're on planet Earth. We're in boxes within boxes, and it is it is a lot of compartmentalization. But yeah, uh, to, to to answer that that whole question, of how I got back into art or how I kept it going, um, big it, it, it did it did become about survival, and I and I guess that's the the uncomfortableness about talking about how, how to you know trying to create a legacy and a life with someone, and realizing I had gone about totally backwards. Um, it's it, it art. I had I had to get to the point where I was trying to beat the the drive to create art out of myself until one day it was like I'm going to die until I do something as stupid and irresponsible as getting an MFA. <laughs> and of course an MFA if if especially well an MFA if you can get an MFA for free if you don't have to pay for an MFA do it. It's the same with you know going to college in general. I say like if you can get a free education, get your scholarships, get that patronage, and do it. If if you have to take out student loans, don't do it. Um, but but yeah, uh, for me the the reason to get an MFA was all about being a part of that community, making connections and friends and people that um, you can learn from and just be a part of, and and also just. Like the freedom to write, but also the pressure of like I have to write because as much as I, I hate school and I hate deadlines and um, the best stuff I ever wrote, the stuff that was really tapped into the subconscious, the really spooky stuff that even three years later it gets put in a in an anthology next to another story and just somehow syncs up. That those are the stories that I wrote under that academic pressure of. Here's a deadline. Your story is suddenly worth less if it doesn't get turned in on time or, you know, whatever. So, um, it, it became about survival, you know. I, I, I ha to become an artist, again, actively, it, it had to be a place of, like, e even though divorce is terrible and awful. Been there. And, um, and I'm not going to have any illusions about, I, I literally did have to, abandon this family I created in a sense I mean I, you know I, I know that I had to make that sacrifice that was going to impact many many people forever to get back to this place of thriving f for everybody at the same time so this again I, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about tonight there's always this paradox Ma making films, the total paradox of the the responsibility and the expression and what's commercial and what's personal, and then family and work. Because for me, art is the work. It's like that the magnum opus is the great work. You know, I'm not I'm not in a a place in my life where I feel like, you know, I'm I'm putting bread on the table because I made art. But at the same time, the paradox is several artists do get to that place, but they're not making money to put bread on the table for their families. They're making money so they end up going insane, and they're going in, you know, they're still on tour at 90 because they don't own the rights to their music, and they have all these baby mamas and all, all, you know, all this stuff. So it it's a paradox, and it's crazy, and it's messy. Um, but I, I, think, I think we're all kind of, 
called to create to a degree. And, and a part of getting back to perfection is being these creators. But we just have to be very mindful, like, what are we, we creating? Especially in this super political world identity centric but but to this exploitive you know degree where you can't even you can't even say it's a a type of oppression without that being extremely dangerous you know totally offensive well man i'll tell you is uh if it were not and uh i wouldn't wish it on myself now or then but if it wasn't for my divorce we would not be sharing the table right now. And the art and everything that I'm working on now would never exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I think it is a good thing, but I sometimes wonder what that other would, would have been like. But uh, you can't do that. Right. And so, like, I press full in on what I have now. And uh, I'm completely thankful for... Uh, the road that I'm on. As hard Amen. as it may be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Super thankful. Super thankful. And any any anxiety of you know, about pulling that trigger and taking that step. Um you know I wanna I wanna own how terrible it is, but at the same time, things are really good. I have the best ex wife in the world, you know. Um and it, you know, I look back and think, how did we ever get together? You know, I don't know if it's it's the way the mind saves you and keeps you sane, but I, I really, I really don't know why I made that call. But I do know that I have the most amazing son, and he would not be here if it wasn't for that um, domino effect of something happened. And I ended up meeting her, and we ended up hanging out. And we ended up getting married. Um, so I, I feel like in some ways. I'm literally having my cake and eating it too, but, um, but it is a it is a tra- type of trauma, and I guess as parents we just we do have to accept that not only are our children going to face trauma, but we may very well be the reason for their trauma, and if I stay with my wife, I, I I'm I'm certain that my son would have faced more trauma, you know, and it's weird too because. My parents got divorced, and that was very impactful, and probably, not probably, I know for a fact, was why I was so fixated on getting married myself, even though I think that is a great thing and an innate desire, but that trauma on top of it helped push me into making some rash decisions. Um, but... You know, you're, it, it's just cool because well, it's, it's interesting because I, um, my own father didn't even realize that his father had been divorced. So there is this sins of the father kind of generational curse thing going on where, you know, my dad was thinking he was the you know, first guy in his family in this modern age of di- divorce, you know, who's getting a divorce, you know, because modern day people believe in love. And when you're not in love anymore, you get divorced. Um, fairly new concept because we don't have to survive anymore. You know, <laughs> I hate my husband, but guess what? <laughs> I want to eat tomorrow and he, he wants, he wants me to help him eat tomorrow too. But anyway, I, I just think it's, it's interesting that, you know, when my grandfather was on his deathbed, he's like, Hey son, by the way, I was actually married to somebody who wasn't your mom for a minute, but we got divorced. So who knows? Yeah. And you know, 
Maybe it's not a generational curse thing, but I, I do like to look at the patterns and um, and just think that we're going to hand trauma to our kids. Don't be too hard on yourself, but damn, at least own it. At least own it, you know, because I'm not going to tell anybody that divorce is a good thing. And if anybody listening to this right now is in a situation where they're highly considering getting a divorce, um, it may be the best decision you ever make. But it's kind of like like any other thing. You kind of just be prepared. You're gonna have to carry that. You might be carrying a bad marriage right now, but just you know, just know it's it's real life. It's all about suffering. Nothing nothing good comes easy. And if you ever have a great relationship with somebody, it's not meant to be easy either. You know, that's just pick it, your man. sacrifices. That's just it. Life is suffering, and uh, that would have that would have been nothing sexier than growing old with that girl I married. And, well. uh, you know, there might be something sexy to the one to come, if there is one to come, with all those things, yeah. you know. Uh, but, yeah, you, you have to you have to take you have to take it for what it is. Uh, but if if you're toting that line, uh, I'd, I'd request you to hold on to what you got unless there's no other way. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, 100 percent. Um <laughs> It's real easy to cross that bridge of no return and have contempt for someone and and you know, or you know lose respect and it's hard to get that back. Um, I think I'm just one of the lucky ones where every everything was really okay and, I and watched, opened up and a I whole new too. world. Um, but man, yeah, don't 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 use what I'm saying to be selfish because you can definitely take a good woman for granted. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know. There may be some good dudes out there too, and you could be taking him for granted, but man, it's so easy to just get used to it. I mean, think of the elbow room. I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the elbow room, but now I'm like, what was wrong with the elbow room? They had paninis. I mean, come on. I miss it. I miss it. I want to be there right now. Yeah. I want to be there right now. Come on. We're, we're. The great thing about a death like that is there is a huge void all of a sudden, and people who weren't creative all of a sudden, whether they like it or not, you got to get creative. That's when the muse grabs you, and if if you're not throwing up, you're writing a song or something because all of a sudden, you know, the Princess Theater's gone, the Elbow Room's gone. Like Harvey's, I've heard through the grapevine, is gone. Um, any kind of establishment or f- something cozy and familiar in your life, you know, it could leave, you know, a person, you know, that's what we're really talking about. A person could leave your life and all of a sudden, boom, you are, you are filling that void because you've had to step up even unconsciously to do the things they used to do. And it might not even be taking out the trash or raking the yard. It could be just something as simple as telling a joke or checking in on somebody and just the whole human drama and interaction is so um wrapped up in the fact that people on this plane come and go and um we just i just don't think we know how much there is that overlap of the past you know and we should be grateful again for like having these hands that can make things in the world you know, because there's there's a lot of minds 
and a lot of emotions that I think are still around us, even mm-hmm. though we can't still see the people. And that's why you hear legends about you know bars and theaters being haunted, and you think about, well, what kind of emotions were happening in the Princess Theater? Or, hell, if Zachary's laid empty for a while and somebody walked up in there and spent the night in there, they might hear something in there, too. I don't know. It's just it. All right, Clementine, you can totally harmonize this time. I won't stop. Take this flesh and crucify the blood of fathers. Come up and sny, conceived a son, born to die inside each daughter. So coming from the MFA uh, up to where you now. 
So coming from MFA to where you are now, uh, tell me a little bit about the journey. So it, it, it's weird at first because you're kind of sick of reading and writing. Um, it was really cool too because we were in the middle of COVID and uh, I think I got my degree September 1st and September 20th I was working. So I immediately went into a teaching job and focused on that. Um, and then also had um, a group that would meet every other Saturday um, of friends from the MFA program, which is something that I think every writer should have, is you know, just a good group where you can share material with each other and give each other feedback and also encourage each other or just be there to hear each other. If um, you know, you're struggling, if you're not feeling it, because it, it, it can be tough. It can be tough um, when you're trying to do the thing um, and find time to write. Um, but uh, again, you, you just, these opportunities arise and you just kind of have to jump at it and submitting stories to different journals and magazines, that's, that's what you're, you're trying to do. So it, it, it definitely is a weird transition though. Um, I'm not a good student at all, so... When I first got out of the MFA program, I really, I really didn't want to write anything, even though that consumed all of my free time, is thinking about what I wanted to write. What grabbed you? What, what did you want to write about? Okay, so the weird thing about how you know, life happens and what, what you think you're trying to do and where you think you're trying to go. So when I was in the program itself, I was really interested in horror fiction and children's lit. Children's lit because protagonists younger than the age of experience, you know, they're still innocent. They haven't lost that that thing that children have where that they they don't really know the the realities and the traumas and the suffering. Feel like those are the are the protagonists that are really interesting. That's why um, Stephen King's It, that original mini series, or even the remake, the the first half with the kids, people just resonate with more because there's just more at stake with a child. So that's why I was interested in children's literature and fairy tales and Edward Gorey and the whole ambiguity there with. These are children protagonists, but adult things are happening to them, and they're losing their innocence. And then how horror fiction, you can work out these existential and theological ideas through that. Um, again, Stephen King and like Pet Cemetery, for example, working through the parental anxieties of losing a child, or even just the grief, you know, of, of losing somebody. So, when I was in the MFA program, I was really interested in that, and that's what I thought I wanted to do and make happen, and it was a real struggle. And also, we, we didn't go over genre fiction or children's literature or anything like that in the MFA program. It's all literary fiction and um, identity um, 
stuff, you know, very individual centric and that kind of thing. Cause like, as I mentioned before, we're, we're living in a world where we're not interested in archetypes and tradition. We're interested in very individualistic stories. But the, but what happened in the meantime was I converted to Orthodox Christianity after a long journey towards that, that actually started to happen, you know, as I'm leaving my wife, getting divorced, going through the MFA program, uh, miraculously St. Catherine Orthodox Church emerges here um, when all that's happening. So uh, I, <laughs> without even trying to make it happen, was writing or Orthodox articles um, as a catechumen and a convert and e even today uh, I'm writing a, a piece um, I haven't submitted it yet but I don't think it'll be any issue I'm, it'll be in the Columbus packet by Thanksgiving on our, our patron St. Catherine because her feast day is uh, November 24th so I'm wanting to do one thing but I, but life is just happening and because I'm in an MFA program for creative writing I'm just the logical choice to fill this need to write something so it's in the paper and it's you know shedding a light that orthodoxy is in Columbus and and as a seeker I'm able to speak to other seekers who, who may be you know looking for orthodoxy so it's really interesting how um, I, I'm trying to do one thing which is horror fiction but then I'm, I'm writing on orthodoxy. And what's even more interesting is kind of the last straw when it came to me deciding to convert was coming into contact with a zine called Death to the World, which um, was at least co-founded, if not created, by Justin Marler, who's the original drummer for Sleep. And anyway... Uh, um, the last article, or the last issue, rather, of Death to the World, I, I uh, was commissioned to write a biography on St. Nicophorus for <laughs> for that issue. So it was, it was really an honor, you know, to be like, well, this is the, the publication that really inspired me to just make that leap and start that conversion process. And then I'm ending up writing something for it, even though all the plans I'm making for myself don't even involve writing on orthodoxy. So now all that being said, I'm out of the MFA program, and um, now we've got an event coming up at Munson and Brothers where we're going to do this Christmas ghost story anthology that five writers are going to read live, and. With the exception of one person, we're all Orthodox. So it's just really interesting that without me even trying to, I, I am writing some kind of spooky uh, horror stories that feature children protagonists. And there is going to be kind of this, this friction and amb ambiguity about, well, is this a children's story or is it just a story with a child protagonist? Which is kind of like the classic question of how do you even define what children's literature is? You know, um, is it children's literature? No, it's not. But um, what about the body, which was turned into Stand By Me by Stephen King? 
that's a story that has children as the protagonist all the way through. I would say that short story or that novella is just as much a YA story as Hatchet or um, you know Bridge to Terabithia or something, but we may not think of it that way. But but either way, the universe is weird, you know. Yeah. I, th- I think I'm in. I'm I'm doing what I want to do, and life happens. But then at the same time, I'm I'm pretty fortunate where things ha- ha- kind of ha- do manifest the way. Yeah, I'm working towards. I mean, and and just a little bit before that, and just going into the conversion process is just going from MFA to orthodoxy. I mean, there there had to be so much going on. I mean, you you spoke a little bit about uh, just what was going on in your own life. Uh, Huge personal events. Yeah. But, I mean, these things were uh, taking place. And they had to come to fruition in some regard. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like this idea of um, if you're using occultism, you know, like ceremonial magic to make something happen in your life. You may intend to manipulate the universe with your will and things may actually happen. But when you're able to look back at it, you'll realize it's not so much one person is putting their will out there and making things happen. It may look more like your will aligned with what was already happening. And I mean that only in like the positive sense of you're tapped into the will of God as opposed to oh, I'm trying to manipulate people or I'm trying to get out of something or I'm trying to take a shortcut. So, you know, it's strange stuff. You know, I, I don't know if I said it before, but it's, it is like playing with fire to a degree. And that's why I compare creating art to occultism because if you're not in line with the will of God, I'm sure you can still have positive results, you know, if you're going after what you want and trying to make things happen. But in the long run, there may be forces beyond you that you're working for and you don't even realize what you're part of. That's just it. And just within inspiration and in occultism, and, I mean, there is a huge divide when we talk about culture right now, whether people are aware of it or not, is um, postmodernism. Let's take it to the, the 60s, where it came from, and we walk it up to the day. Occultism is something that is older than Christianity itself. Oh, yeah. It's always been that. And Christ came... Uh, and when Christ came, it was the splinter of occultism. And now we walk it up to the day. And just in our latest memory of you and I being awake, or being alive, and looking at this thing, uh, just in Western culture, as it is with postmodernism being alive for 70 years, is... Uh, it's occultism. There's Christ. 
and then there's mundane. We like to think that we're in this mundane world. We're doing occult stuff all the time. Um, we teach our kids to blow out candles and make a wish on their birthday. We tell them about Santa Claus, which they will ultimately realize is a lie. So that's just priming your children to re reject not, not only Christ, but just reject the concept of God completely. You're, you're literally telling your kids there's a guy with a white beard who loves them and is blessing them with gifts. And then this Western idea of God as a guy with a white beard, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really easy for a kid to all of a sudden go, well, if they're lying about Santa Claus. Um, but we're, do, we're doing occult stuff all the time. We carry, you know, smartphones in our pockets that are black magic mirrors and... Um, if you've ever seen Hellraiser, you know, the box that brings people all pleasure and all pain is exactly what our smartphones are, so... Yeah, that's just it. I think we're just... It's so... I don't know. It's like so in, in our faces that we can't see it. Um, just like how when traumatic stuff happens, it's our, our brains are trying to protect us. Our brains also think they need to protect us from these supernatural things. And I, <sighs> Miracles happen every day to us. And, and we may even be able to recognize that and think for a moment, wow, that's proof. That's proof. There is something beyond this world. There um, is something else. But then we forget about it. It just... Move on. We, yeah, we move on, and our our minds, for whatever reason, decide we don't have to remember that miracle. And so we live in a, a world where occultism is happening every day. Uh, every day we participate in it, but we forget the miracles. And we turn a complete blind eye to it. Is like, okay, it is. It it is so much one thing for me to say that. Christ or whomever let's just specifically Jesus Christ bless this but it is just as easy for another to curse the name of Christ or myself to curse the name of Christ and so in this age that we're living in now it's uh, it's the inability to tell lie from truth and light from dark and, I mean, perceptionally, unless you are truly awake, you have no perception of reality. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're a little kid, you know. Because it's spooky what little kids know. It truly they, is. They know, they know it's right. Um, and I don't know if it's just from you know, years and decades of denying that gut feeling of this isn't right. Oh, but this is the law. Like it's not right, but but yeah, like you know, if the law says that even though this person was a jerk and sold sold you know whatever rights away you know make a quick buck, you know, 
there, there is a veil. Yeah, there, there is a, there are blinders on. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm talking about the phone being a black magic mirror. There's a, there's a flat uh, screen TV right there, and it, it looks like somebody just took the monolith from 2001 and put it on the side. <laughs> it was like. <laughs> There was a reason people were afraid of the TV and movies, just like people were afraid of books. Mm-hmm. People were real afraid of books. Mm-hmm. If some woman read too much, they thought she a witch. It's a witchy woman, right? Um, but we're we're so far removed from just the need to survive. You know, we're so so far beyond like sacrificing the best sheep that we got in the flock because we don't want to die so we're going to make this huge sacrifice to these you know gods and we make sacrifices in different ways now um, you know so, so the the occult pagan you know pre-Christ religious work is still happening but in, in a totally different way now That's people absolutely. eat meat without having to deal with it on their own. Mm-hmm. So, still a lot of suffering, still a lot of bloodshed, um, but we just don't see it anymore. That's it. Oh, yeah. and, and we'll go right back to it, uh, but just to take it back on you, uh, you left MF, MFA, um, you were torn apart, so to speak. Uh, you had no idea what to do with yourself. And so you you began to write. Yeah. You began to tell these stories. Right. Because um, one, one thing I faced with just the, um, the dysfunction of being an artist is trying to find that balance of how are you going to support yourself and your family. Um, so then when things come full circle and you realize, okay, how, how can I um, relieve this constipation of uh, these words and ideas are not being expressed? So now we're at a point where to survive, creativity must happen. I think that I started to really recognize the communal effort that goes into art, which is something that I really lost with my rejection of cinema, which is a very collaborative art. You can't make a movie solo. I mean, you can. It's possible, um, especially if you're like an animator or you're just in the studio by yourself. Or, um, but... I, I've I found that um, when I was writing alone pre-MFA and in the MFA program um, things just weren't really happening but then as soon as I start collaborating with other people kind of the same way that you know television happens where you have the writers room and people are coming together with ideas then all of a sudden uh, somebody's fresh new idea that has popped out of a brainstorm session is reminding you of a piece you wrote three years ago that you didn't know what to do with and seemed to not be connected at all and suddenly you put those 
strange pieces with somebody else's fresh idea and it just goes together perfectly. So again, you have this weird sense that you're creating something and you're directing your will to, to make an entertaining piece of fiction. <laughs> but then at the same time, it's totally in sync with other people's will. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, is this even my will or I'm just so in love and open with the medium and with the ideas that that medium can express that in this very sexual and um, spiritual way you just kind of open this thing um, but just like worshipping and just like making love there's definitely going to be moments where you're just not feeling it you know you could be standing in the most beautiful sanctuary um, with the most beautiful singing or, or anything and 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 think why why am I not feeling that religious ecstasy? But those are also the moments where I think if you do pray to God and you do worship God, even if you don't feel like it, that's when God is really gonna bless you because he knows Man, you didn't even you didn't, you don't even want to be doing this right now. You know, you don't even want to be doing this. Yes, sir. You know, you're so depressed and so down and so not feeling it that you don't even want to try to survive. You don't even want to ask the Creator to, to save you. So if you do step up and, you know, do the work anyway, I think I think God's going to bless you, you know, tenfold for something like that. You know? And plus, it's going to piss the demons off. You know? Because if, if, you're, if you're still glorifying God despite the demons beating you down, at some point the demons are going to say, I'm aiding in this man's salvation. I'm, I'm giving him temptation, and he's re- re- rejecting it. So maybe the demon is helping that person in their salvation. And that's when that demon's probably going to leave you alone. Because it's, it's because you are saying no to the temptation. The temptation to not worship God. The temptation to not pray for your brother and sister. The temptation to do what you know Preach. you really don't want to do. And it's not in your best interest. I mean, and I believe that is the thing about the arts that leads to God. Yeah. That leads to enlightenment. That leads to... Uh, the conversation that I want to have is what you just said is when I look at art on a wall, if I were to look at that picture or if I were to listen to the song is where does it take my mind and where does it take my mind's eye? And really think about it is like because, I mean, with a lot of today's music, especially pop, and I'm not to pick on any one person, but Cardi B, is I don't want to be taken to a sexual place. I don't want to be taken to this place of lowness. I want to be taken to higher ground. I want to be taken to a place beyond myself that leaves my narcissism and my nihilism 
and all of these humanistic traits behind. And I want to put all of my thoughts towards something higher. And I would like that thing to be Jesus Christ. And to give everything that has happened to him because I ultimately believe that he can make it better. It's like you, all these failures of mine of this day, days gone by, days to come. I know that you can take it. You've already done it. And But that's a big thing about today is if you think about the occultism and if bigger mind frame, uh, there's a lot of things that people don't understand. We take Freemasonry uh, for granted, uh, the Eastern Star and all these things. You look at the dollar bill on the back side of it. There's a lot of Confucius said it. There is nothing said more in this life. It's not by word or law. It's by hand gesture and sign. And so all these symbols and symbolisms and things that we do of our hands and our words mean things. We should speak good things. I mean, all that people are going to get out of us tonight are words. But look at these photographs and look at these symbolisms of things that's all throughout the world. Is You have to step back. And it's like, look at all this. Look at all this. What is it pointing to? Is it the occult? Or is it pointing to the one true God? And by one true God, it's like, there's the deception. There's the deception. It's like people are completely misinformed right now. Forever. For always. That's why Christ came. They were misinformed the moment until Christ appeared. When he left, they were misinformed once again. They're so misinformed. Is the God of this world, people don't understand, is like the God of this world is the devil. It's Satan. He has complete reign over this, until it's over. And the true, the one true God called him a liar, the father of deceit. It said he fell from heaven. Ezekiel said it struck his right eye. And if I were to go pop culture, and I'm not going to the occult too much, but I'm a fan of David Bowie. But what did David Bo- what did yeah. David Bowie put over his right eye? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lightning bolt. That's how the Bible depicted Satan falling from the sky. Man fell to earth. Yeah, Bowie's playing with all that stuff. And, or on purpose. On purpose. Oh yeah, and he's definitely a guy who dabbled in the occult and realized if you start doing stuff, you can make stuff happen. But you can, you can, you can re- read about it, find it real quick. Just get on, get on the internet. He, he, he freaked himself out. He freaked himself out. 
And I find a lot of people is like, and that's what I call like some musicians of the day is when they make a quick change, maybe a genre or something happens. I was like, you're having your Bowie moment. I think you just had something click. Mm -hmm. You just saw something. Yeah. People aren't going to talk about it. Um, you know, weird, weird stuff happens and people who are in those positions of power and are around things happening learn real quick that it doesn't take much time or effort. If, if you if you want to do it, you can you can make some things happen. But then things start happening to you, you know. Um, but it's so crazy. Pe- people are not going to share that. They're just going to say, like, I'm never going to do that again. Moving on, you know. But they're never forgetting. They're never forgotten for that. Because there are so many signs in these photographs in their album covers or when they were on a magazine is like all of these signs that you gave like whether it be the eye or a pledge of silence Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. punishment and all this symbolism that you give is for the people who are awake we see exactly what you're doing. But for anyone else just looking at it, it's like, oh, that's just art. No, it's way more than art. And, and that's what's crazy, too, because somebody could be just making art and not realizing it, but be totally tapped in to that archetypal imagery, whether they've been just programmed by it so they just intuitively know, or it's just the collective unconscious and... I mean, Freemasonic free ritual is so perfectly archetypal, uh, even though we know that the Grand Lodge of England's been around since 1717. You know, mm-hmm. People want to say Freemasonry goes back to ancient Egypt. Or yeah, they want to go back, back to Templars or whatever yeah, else. But it's so perfectly archetypal. It seems like the kind of thing that when you, you read those apocryphal books of the Old Testament where it talks about Enoch and the, the demons and Nephilim teaching man how to, you know, how carpentry and stonemasonry and teaching women how to wear makeup and seduce... Women. You don't think they teach you people now? Maybe, maybe those Freemasonic initiations came from demons too because it is, it, it is so perfect. And that's why you were, you know, when you were talking about the 1960s, and postmodernism. It's like the 1960s are kind of the peak of the age of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all, Freemasonry came out of the age of enlightenment because the Roman Catholic Church had already innovated a lot and dropped a lot of the traditions. And then Martin Luther, you know, didn't like what he was saying, so they threw out. Um, a lot of essential elements um, and, yeah. and then even after Martin Luther there's more innovations and now we have 30 to 40,000 different denominations of Christianity hmm. um, but of course something like Freemasonry is going to thrive in this 
Protestant Reformation Age of Enlightenment that turns into postmodernism and because it's a supplement, Freemasonry and even it's even other Protestant inspired institutions, they're taking the place of Christ or they're filling the void that was created by losing those ancient traditions that they are doing everything they're do it it does everything that Christ said it was everything Christ said that Satan fell from the sky like a lightning bolt mm-hmm. and what did he call Satan he was the father of lies is deceitful. He, <clears throat> I would almost argue that the entire West, the conception of the dollar bill, was a lie based on Satanism. The all-seeing eye. And that all seeing I, I think J.R.R. Tolkien seen it. And if anyone has ever seen the Lord of the Rings film, or if you've read the film, is Sauron, hey, <coughs> he was put on a pyre, and it was the eye. It was, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. But that all seeing I is culture, and that culture oversees everything from our art from our currency, <clears throat> from our family, to everything that we do in our lives, man. It's insane. <clears throat> and, we, and we've given ourselves to it, but it's all a lie. Yeah, man. <clears throat> the, the funny thing is, I'm, I'm not endorsing occultism. You know, just like the disclaimer before the thriller music video. But an, an experience in that can reveal Christ. Yes. Because the way Satan works is the inversion of Christ. Once one realizes they have been participating in the satanic lie of this world and then see what God's vision is all of a sudden you 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 can see how I'm literally living in a inverted Christian world I'm literally living in a world where the ancient people that came before me were able to just look at the stars before Christ even came and figure out 90% of it. (coughs) That's why you have so much crossover with the collective religions, not because somebody was ripping off somebody and Christ is just this amalgamation of Osiris and Dionysus and these other gods. It's No, it's it's the truth and our ancestors were able to see with their own eyes the reality of metaphysics and how our 
the universe really works. Christ came and completed that information, but there's plenty of good and plenty of truth in the proto-Christian religions and even in this more new agey witchcraft um, worldview that kind of exists now that's that thinks it's rebelling against Christ, that wants to be anything but Christ. You know, the little boy with <coughs> with his anger, you know, coming up to the guy at the Halloween party just like saying, thank you for not being God. Because the, the West has daddy issues. I mean, look at look at who we voted for president in 2016. And yeah. look at who we voted for now, we got some daddy issues. Big time. Issues. <coughs> Big time. Big time. <coughs> and I don't give a damn what side you lean on. Whether Trump or Biden. He's not wrong. And neither of you are right. No one is right on that. Yeah, we, we, we already live in a country that from from the get-go was anti-monarchy, anti-Christ, and anti-the church. We want to think that, you know, George Washington was praying to deity. I mean, I guess he was a, a deist in, in some way, but just like with the Santa Claus thing, you know, you're, you're, you're priming a whole culture of people to deny reality when we live in a world where hierarchy has to exist. I have to be under a boss or I have to be the boss. There is a certain way things have to work. And yet we want to pretend like monarchy is wrong and having a king and a ruler is wrong. And then we turn around and we vote. But it can be metaphysical. But for, for these bozos. Well, yeah, it is metaphysical because heaven is reflected on earth. At, at least in a in a really crass kind of new new age way of saying it, the whole as above so below. But I mean, we say it. Um, I I don't want to I don't want to steer people the wrong way and say that what's happening in heaven is happening on earth because if anything, it's like an inversion. It's a mirror. It's upside down because, like you said, Alan. We're living in Satan's world. I mean, think about Job. <laughs> yeah. To Job. That's, yeah. That's the, that's the oldest book in the scriptures. That's exactly. It's that's the oldest. Yes. Scriptures we have is Job is older than Genesis. It's old, but we do know that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, yeah, we want to pray that the work we're doing is in line with the will of God. But there's there's definitely a reflection with what's in the heavens and what's happening here on earth. Um, but, if, but if you're not seeing it, you're not going to see it. And I'm just begging people. Is if, 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 if you're living in 2021 right now, going in 2022, is if, if you don't see the perversion, if you don't see the absolute lie, if 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 you don't see what's happening is yeah. man, that's I hate that for you. I hate that for you. 
Yeah, because it, it is sad, but the, the, there's such just a, the divide is so huge that if you don't see it, it's almost political. Man, I mean, what's scary is some someone is gonna see this as you are you are so messed up that you think. The, the, on, the only thing you have is this person named Jesus Christ. And with, without Christ, you're nothing. You're just going to go into nothingness. And that, that people think that that's really terrible, that you know, that's depressing. But it's actually sound theology. Like, yes, I'm nothing without Christ. You're, you're thinking like it's messed up. Yes. But the reality is we are trapped in this death. You don't understand your slavery. Exactly. You and don't we, you don't understand your depravity. And we're already programmed to think that it's super offensive and wrong to even say that the way our world is structured is a form of slavery. And it's not black or white here in the Western world. It's not oppressive to any color. It's incredibly oppressive to everyone worldwide. Without Christ, you will perish. You will be permanently enslaved. You will permanently perish without him. And that is the fact in everything in this occult that has been going on longer than Christianity, as old as the world is, Satan is the god of this world. He's the god of this world. God, Jesus Christ, gave him permission over this world to reign. He reigns heavenly heavily over this world and he'll have his way until Christ says no but your job is to see through the delusion you have to wake up whether it's through orthodoxy or Catholicism or Protestantism however you find Christ you have to find him some kind of way or you're going to perish as soon as somebody gets real hungry and they realize that they've got to survive, the identity politics are going to go away. The division between races is going to go away. Someone can help you if you can come together and rise together. You're going to forget about the identity politics stuff. Yeah. The identity politics stuff is just there to keep working class people from uniting. uniting. That's just it. Um, Absolutely. You know, as somebody who had the luxury and privilege to go through an MFA program, met a lot of people who are all about that kind of stuff. Every single one of them has the money, the privilege, and the luxury to engage in that kind of stuff but 
you know, show me people who are not privileged, they're not even worried about that because they're just trying to survive. And their identity comes from what they do to get through the day, what they do for other people, not some kind of, I, I mean, I don't even know what to call it. Just post-postmodernist identity individual stuff. The polar opposite of community, the polar opposite of what God intended, you know. We live in a world where mosquitoes spread disease and suck yes. blood. And as a child, I wondered, what what was the point of mosquitoes? Why did God make a mosquito? But I, I did not understand the theology of the fall and how animals and nature were different before the fall. Adam and Eve, their bodies were different. Things were different before the fall. That's it. We have to eat meat now. I love meat. Adam and Eve were not eating meat. It didn't. Ha- it didn't. was not eating meat. It the didn't. People for the flood did not eat meat. We didn't. Have it didn't used to be that way. Yeah. It didn't. So things are different, and man, all all, all it takes. I, I mean, I, I, all it takes is just really looking at it. I mean, how many people were atheists? And then try to disprove Christianity. Those those are the strongest believers. Those are the people who really know what the scriptures say, as opposed to people who make their living, you know, preaching. Um, and I'll tell you this: is uh, atheist. If you're still here, <laughs> listening, you are the most ignorant and the most susceptible person that Satan wants because you don't even believe in a God because everyone else believes in something and you openly don't believe in anything yeah that's what they say I I think atheists are but, crying out for God. Atheists are, are like people, you know, it's like dropping hints that you're going to kill yourself. Because <laughs> you so bad don't want to kill yourself. You know, you're just... I, I want to believe that. I want to believe that. I, I don't even know how, I mean, how do you know? I mean, if you call yourself an atheist, you're saying you, you do know. There's got, How can you know? There's some agnostic... Like, even the greatest musicians, and just going back to the art with film work or mm-hmm. anything else, is even the greatest weren't atheists. Well, yeah. I mean, just like, just like the identity politics thing. Show me an atheist who's poor. Show me an atheist who doesn't know if they can pay their bills this week. I don't know. I don't know any atheists who aren't upper middle class, if not upper class. Yeah. Um, being an atheist is a luxury and privilege. You you not you don't have to think about things that most people think about. You know, just like having the luxury to you know in, invent you know scenarios that aren't relevant 
to the survival of most people. You know, you know, um, or, or maybe people don't know. Uh, I mean, we're, it's funny to think that there was a time where you know you had to have children to survive. If you if there were no children being produced, there was no civilization. And now we live in a world where Italy and, and Greece, China, even America, like the birth rates are so low. Yeah. I don't think Italy and Greece are, are going to recover. Um, but for some reason, people are fixated on overpopulation and the, the right for women to get abortions. And, I mean, sure, um, if you don't want to give birth to, you know, a, a child because someone raped you, I get it. But I know plenty of people who voted for Biden who were the uh, byproduct of rape, so... It's, you know, it's tough stuff. It's tough stuff, but... Uh, um, but the point is... You gotta have babies. <laughs> you gotta have babies. You gotta... civilization. But we live in a world where people literally fight for the right to um, not only not have babies, but also to... Um, I don't know complain that there's too many people on the planet when there's not I mean yeah. why, why do you think that people don't like Africa you know what why um, um, you know the, the, the first Bill Gates uh, vaccine scandal back in I think it was the 90s where they were sterilizing Ethiopian women between the ages of like 11 and 19. I mean, they were literally, you know, I mean, it's documented fact, you know, sterilizing African women. And nobody likes to talk about Fauci, how he completely fucked up the AIDS crisis in the 80s. It's some weird stuff. Um, hey, but now we totally praise him. Africa has really high birth rates. Yeah. Um, other countries in the West do not. So definitely look at what's going on with white people going into Africa and trying, you know, it's weird. It's weird stuff. It's but it's not weird. I say it's weird stuff, but it's really not weird. It's 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 obvious. It makes total sense. Birth rates are really important. Um, you I, should. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just easier to control people if they're they're not having babies. I I, I, yeah. I can't even imagine to understand what is really going on. But I I, I don't know. I I just don't know. Let's take it. Let's take a step back as, um, man, we have uh, just closing thoughts. Uh, I know we chase a hell of a rabbit, but tell me a little bit about um, your music and, uh, like, where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I, 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 I retired from filmmaking and pretty much as soon as Whitehawk started I was like yeah I can't make music anymore because uh, it definitely comes from a demonic realm I know I say demonic because I don't want to say demon because demon connotes something evil um, demon in the Aristotle uh, sense of more like a muse 
Or did you notice that the Did you notice that the light stopped flickering? I know I did. Yeah, yeah. It stopped. It stopped flickering, and then Clementine fell asleep. Bumped into the cord, and the cord came out. So I thought, like maybe maybe the demons. Were One and two. We're taking a break, but the, the dog can do it now. Um. I think. It's too weird. Like, I, I don't... You heard me play the piano. I don't know how to play the piano. Um, and some of those songs, I don't know where they came from. Um, it's it's always when there's some really heightened emotion. Um, like that little outro on, on that um, on that piece. There it um, is again. Whoops. That, now the lights are going weird. Um, that, the, that outro... Um, I wrote separately, but then at some point put them together. Um, it's just something that just happened. It's like you're really upset and sad, and you, you sit down at a, a musical instrument, and that just happens. You know? I mean, I, I have enough musical training where I, I know where middle C is, and I know that if I put my thumb on C, my middle finger will be on E, and my pinky will be on G. And I can make that same shape up and down the keyboard. But that's it. And I'm not saying that that's me. I'm just saying playing an instrument is spooky. I mean, a man and a woman can play music together and then want to have sex. Because it's that intimate and magical and transcendent. But at the same time, the music can have sex with you, and you can be like, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I mean, anybody who's in a band who's listening to me right now, I'm sure has jammed and been doing some kind of riff or groove. And then, for some reason, everyone in that band decides to go in something different. And nobody said, hey, we're just going to do this chord change, or we're going to totally... But it just happens. And it's the same with kind of my... Um, my breakthrough with writing fiction. It's a, it's a whole different game when you have a writing partner or have a group of people or, or you're all writing stuff separately but then you bring your separate pieces together and something happens. Again, with musicians, you're talking about um, you essentially have like a festival at your house. Yes. And there were multiple people who were playing these Dylan songs as if that was planned. And it wasn't. And it's not. And it's that it's that spider web where everybody's doing their own thing, but if they have the luxury of being able to pull out of what's happening and see the whole picture, they may realize I'm in total symmetry with, with other creators. Uh-huh. And we are creators. I'm I Part of our salvation is being these little creators while we're on earth. Because once we die, we can't really do anything else but pray for those who are still alive and hope that those who are alive are praying for us. But while we're on earth and we got physical hands and we can do stuff, it goes a long way. Hey, we, I mean, I, you I, better I, do something with it. I've been blessed to have a couple near-death experiences and in and, and those moments when you think that you're dying you really think about man I dropped the ball on that 
I should have I should have done that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not thinking about the stuff I did I did do. <laughs> I'm not thinking I should not have done that. I'm thinking, oh man. That thing I didn't do, that was the most important thing in the world to me, but for some reason I put it off another day. Yeah. Uh. You know, but it's But but it's okay because the scary stuff that happens in life Oh, it might, might just be the best thing that ever happened to you. I used to even joke when when somebody would be whining to me about something that they just hadn't had enough trauma yet. And that's a really insensitive, messed up thing to say to somebody. And I don't know if I really believe that, but I, I guess it all goes with how stoic can you get. <laughs> you know, sometimes the worst stuff is the best stuff. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're at the point. Let's uh, rehash the... I got three questions left. Uh, Alec? Soccer to me. Who was the most influential musician in your life? As of right now. If you think long, you think wrong. Well, a musician? Man, I don't know. Ted, let's escalate the question. Escalate it. Who was the most influential person in your life? I guess my dad, you know. So, Dad? I want, I want to say, even if I never knew my dad, you know, if, if, if I came to this world, like, never knowing who my dad was, no contact with my dad, I want to say I would still be the exact same person. But then at the same time, my dad planted a lot of awesome seeds. So, we'll never know. But again, I think it goes back to that spiderweb thing where you, you may think you're doing this, but there's this whole other thing that you're up with. And, and, and you know, the, the whole genetic inheriting, you know, your ancestors and all their baggage. <laughs> Fair enough. Number two, what was your favorite part about the interview? My favorite part about the interview was realizing that you're on the wavelength and as much as I love solitude and being alone I really am not alone at all I, I'm really not the outsider that I think I am there's there's a ton of people who are who totally you know we, we might not totally have our blinders off we may still be looking through those sunglasses and, and not seeing reality but I think if, if I learned anything tonight it's we're a lot more awake right now you know things are being revealed and, and we're seeing it but also just the um, the the uh, the confirmation that something doesn't want us talking about what we're talking about because this has been incredibly pleasurable and fun and also amazing how much electrical interference we've had and flickering oh. lights and 
um, when I went out to pee in the bushes a minute ago, that Bluetooth speaker was turning on on its own again, and it's, it's and never don't, done that before tonight. Do not jinx us. <laughs> we have got to get this recording if, out. If, if you are hearing this right now, it means we beat the demons. <laughs> and by the way, we had one before this one. Last question is, where can people find your work? You can't find my work. Um, get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and for a very limited time, you can go to Friendly City Books in Columbus, Mississippi, pick up a copy of Step Into the Fifth Dimension. Not only can you read my story, Baby Moon, which is very upsetting, and scary and taps into some real primal stuff. But you can also read Danny Newman's story and Catherine Armbruster and Elizabeth Thomas Hines, Matt Dennison, a bunch of authors from Mississippi and Alabama who are writing some really, really cool stuff. And as much as I think Twilight Zone and horror anthologies are, it, it's it's so much more than that. It you're you're opening up this genre for some cozy thrills, but there's some really cool stuff in there. Um, but other than that, I've been real um, I've been real private about how much uh, digital exposure I'm giving myself right now. So if you do want to hear some Alec Hawkins stories, you can come to Munson and Brothers at the moment of the winter solstice on December twenty first. And um, a group of us writers just kind of had this epiphany that we wanted to do another public reading because we had so much fun doing it on Halloween Eve. And um, all it really took was saying that out loud, and now we have five different authors with five different stories that we all wrote in kind of a, a fever storm. And now that we're emailing them back to each other and looking at them, they uh, freakily kind of go together. So the idea is um, come to Munson & Brothers at 6 o'clock on December 21st. It's a Tuesday. Um, we'll probably have hot cider and cocoa. And then, of course, they have a great uh, craft beer selection. St. Catherine's Orthodox Choir is going to sing Christmas carols. And, um, and then we'll read our ghost stories. And, um, yeah, so for, for right now at least, if you want to find me, you got to find me uh, in the real world because um, I don't like the Matrix. That's what's up. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so, you can find Alec in the real world. You know where he'll be. Monson Brothers. Um, I'm partial to that. I work with that. Uh, closing thought is uh, I'm glad that uh, we were able to talk about the difference between occult and religion and that is so incredibly hard to do today it is the, the difference is you're, you're, you're being you're being selfish and um, thinking that you can do things by yourself that's occultism. Theurgy, Christianity, that is knowing that there's no way 
out without Christ. And if your will is not aligned with God's, you're not going to be too happy. You may take some shortcuts and have some instant gratification, but um, man, all I can say is it's not too late. Even if you're dead, it's not too late. We can still pray for you. Um, so, for the for those of you who who worry about that kind of thing, it, it's all right. You know, pray pray for folks. Pray for folks if, if they're not with you anymore. You know, just because somebody is not flesh and blood anymore doesn't mean that you can't pray for them. Um, if if anything, if you're even thinking about that, it's probably because they're thinking, please pray for me. So, if you ever think about people who have passed on, pray for them. That's probably why you're thinking. Alec, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Alan. This has been just a real pleasure. It's just been, it's been life affirming. I'm, I'm <laughs> this won't be the last time. This shoot no. This was the first time, yeah. but it will not be the last time. We're just getting started. Thank you so much. We're out of here. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.